rumor, a currently circulating story or report of uncertain or questionable truth. This is Rumors of Grace, where I talk to people rumored to have found beauty and truth in broken and uncommon places. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Rumors of Grace. As always, this is Bob Hutchins coming to you from just outside of Nashville, Franklin, Tennessee. I've got a guest who is calling in from San Diego today. His name is Mr. Gregory Karras. He is a licensed marriage and family therapist. He's a theologian. He's an adjunct professor. He's an ordained pastor. He's a husband. He's a writer. He's a recording artist. This is a true Renaissance man. And the reason that I reached out to him and really wanted to have him on the show was that he has written a book. Uh, He's written a couple of books in the past, uh, Seasons of Heartbreak, Divine Echoes, but specifically a brand new one's just come out May 21st of this year, 2020, and it's called Religious Refugees, Deconstructing Towards Spiritual and Emotional Healing. And if you've been a fan of this podcast for a while, you know that that's what we talk about probably more than anything else. So I think Mark's story is not only relevant, but who he is, what he does. He's received a master's degree in counseling. He's also a master, has a master's in divinity from Drew Theological School in New Jersey. And he's currently working on his doctorate from Alliant International University in San Diego. So this is a person who knows what he's talking about to some degree, and I am anxious to hear his story, and ultimately, where did this new book come from? Religious Refugees, Deconstructing Towards Spiritual and Emotional Healing. Mark, welcome to Rumors of Grace. Bob, it's great to be here. Uh, Very excited to have a conversation with you. Thank you. Thank you for being flexible. I know we are, our schedules have been kind of uh, back and forth, but thank you for taking your time. I know you're studying for your doctorate. You're, are you still a pastor right now? Are you at it with a church? No, I'm okay. an ordained pastor, but um, I'm a, attending a church. Okay. I was working at a church. My wife and I moved to Japan for a few mm. years. Mm. Then after getting back, we're just basically attending right now. Got it. Got it. And before we jump into questions and, and, and your new book, I want to hear your life story. Did you grow, where did you grow up? Where were you born? Let's go there. Well, I, I preface it with it's, it's going to sound like an epic drama on the <laughs> Lifetime channel, but born in New York, Long Island, New York, and I have a twin brother. Mm. And I have a brother who's a year and two months younger, mm. and then a, a stepsister. And yeah, it was definitely an interesting childhood. Okay, you say, say you said an interesting childhood to say the least. Do you want to talk about that a little more, or shall we move on? Yeah, if, if you if you want if you want me to cry, Bob, I could talk about it. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean my story is so intricately wound up with who I am and what I have Mm. chosen to focus on and what I do. Mm. And Mm. so it's all related. Okay. So growing up was, was quite, you know, every family is dysfunctional. I think mine was a little off the charts Mm. and yeah. So my mom was a drug addict as long as I could remember. Mm. My stepdad was, and I, 
He may very well be still in a, a motorcycle gang. It's called the Pagans, one of the kind of you know, top gangs, you know, around there. Um, he wound up going to prison for a while. Mm. Dad, uh, parents divorced when I was six, and that was a very traumatizing end to their relationship as I saw my mother wield a knife at my dad. Mm. And that was the last interaction that, that we had. And unfortunately, my dad was, he wasn't, I didn't understand any kind of form of diagnosis. But he's been diagnosed today with paranoid schizophrenia. And I assume that that even back then, when I was growing up, that had an effect on him. And ultimately, us is going through a lot of mm. abuse. And yeah, it was very, very difficult. My mom wound up dying from a drug overdose. And just a lot of chaos and violence and drugs and, you know, everything you can think of there. Mm. Uh, so it was quite, quite uh, a journey. It's no wonder that I eventually became a therapist. Mm. And to even thicken the plot, my, my great-grandmother died in a mental hospital. Her sister was mentally ill. A few of my uncles have a mental illness. My brother, who I told you was a year and two months younger, he he has schizophrenia himself, and mm. he wound up going to prison off his meds, and then uh, in prison he wound up murdering somebody. So he'll be in prison for the rest of his life. Mm. So all of that is just so. I mean, it's it's just I was born and raised into that stuff. Mm. And if it wasn't, you know, people always said, "Mark, why are you getting so many degrees?" And I think, you know, in hindsight, it was really a way to heal. It, yeah. it was a real longing to grow and to develop. And trust me, when you go through a three-year intensive Masters of Divinity program and on top of a three-year Masters in Counseling program, on top of, you know, I'm just working on my dissertation for my doctorate, you know, all of that has helped mentor me and shape me and help heal me to the, to the person I am today. And if it wasn't for that, I joke, but I, I probably would either be dead or I would be a cult leader. Um, <laughs> thank God I'm neither one of those. <laughs> wow. Wow. Well, thank you for, for being honest about that and setting the stage. I'm sure there's yeah. lots, lots more aspects of your story, but we won't, we'll kind of shift gears now. Sure. And I, and I, and I mm-hmm. want to get to the book because I think, you know, it's important to, to really hear a little bit about your background, because I'm sure it sets the stage. Mm -hmm. So what is a religious refugee, and where did you get the inspiration from? Religious refugee, there was some phrases of kind of spiritual refugees. I've heard that before. And even in Josh Packard's work, a sociologist who worked for the D Church, I believe his book is called Church Refugees. So I think religious refugees really stuck out to me because they could be spiritual, and many of them are. But just like if there was a refugee from Ethiopia, we would say an Ethiopian refugee, where these people are coming from is sort of out of religion, so to speak. So while they very much are typically very spiritual people, they, for me, uh, are religious refugees. And where it comes out of, too, is, well, I'm one of them. So. Hmm. I'm not just researching and writing about them because, you know, it sounded interesting. This is very much my own journey. 
and then as someone who, you know, I, I feel deep compassion. That's, that's, I guess, part of who I am. Probably, you know, fostered due to what I've been through. But I've just kept seeing and hearing, and even as a therapist and, and as a pastor, I was a worship pastor for a long time and youth pastor and been in ministry for many years. Just hearing people's stories. Yeah. Just hearing people afraid. Just hearing people uh, hiding. Just hearing people's cognitive dissonance. Hear people's stories of rejection and deep pain. And as I've researched this now, I mean, it even gets worse into what we would call trauma, big mm. T trauma. So all of that sort of set the stage for there's something happening here. And and I always say, God, where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? And I couldn't shake this, you need to write a book, mm. kind of, and you need to help people and and. This was my focus for a while, and I'm so glad I wrote it. And it seems to be having a, a beautiful impact on, on many people, and I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Briefly, if you would, Mark, what is your own story of deconstruction? I know this is a, a topic that's very near and dear to my heart, and yeah, things that I've been through, and many people that I know. But I, uh, it, does this come for, out of your own experience? Yeah. So. When I became a Christian, you heard some of the crazy story, and it wound up culminating into me trying to kill myself by getting AIDS and a wild, crazy story. But ultimately, I was in a field, and I raised up my hands, and I said, God, if you're real, then show yourself to me. Hmm. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. And that is, you know, some people can't pinpoint sort of a salvation moment, but that was that was it. That was the defining moment of my life then was God. But then I wound up going into a oneness Pentecostal church. And if any of your listeners are familiar with that or, or not, I don't know how they fare today, but back then you could go into your Christian bookstore in the cult section and find a book that had ministered to those people. Sure. So I, I think that was a very interesting experience you know, women couldn't cut their hair, men couldn't have facial hair. You were only saved if you spoke in tongues. I was told that I couldn't hang out with people who believe in the Trinity. It was a very us and them. We're the only ones who got the truth kind of mentality. A very typical cult situation. And I don't want to split it all bad because um, there were some good people there and had some very positive experiences relationally. So I wound up getting out of that. Then running away, basically, I wasn't allowed to go to school. And something's happened with the pastor and the pastor's wife. And I was, uh, you know, privy to that. And I saw what happened. I, I basically ran away. I ran away to a Christian college, Christian Missionary, uh, a Christian Missionary Alliance College. And so it was there where this sort of, my whole world was becoming basically shattered because someone who's deceived do not, they don't know they're deceived. Right. And I, I became to question everything. And I remember early on in that experience of going to that Christian college, I was having panic attacks. I was literally thinking I was going crazy. I didn't know who God was. People were walking around and praying for people. And I was like, who's Christian? Who's not? Because, you know, this whole, you know, Satan, 
and people kind of doing Satan's work and even Trinitarians are listening to Satan and Satan's theology. I didn't know who to trust. And it was very, very scary coming out of that. So I think that sort of, it sowed some seeds of deconstruction. Like I was sort of an inquisitive guy before that, but not really. But after that, forget about it. I, every question that I could think of, you know, who is Jesus? Why is Jesus? Is Jesus really God, Trinity? I mean, any doctrine you can think of, I began to question. And so there were some major ones. You know, I, I remember the first one, I talk about this in my book. It may seem small to some listeners, but it was the notion of divine sufficiency. Hmm. It was a notion that I, I truly believe that, that God should be my all, and I should be 100% satisfied in God. Hmm. And I don't know, you know, I, I don't know if I got that from part of the Pentecostal experience. And even in the, the college I went to, that was a big thrust of, of the, you know, leadership's teachings. You know, Jesus should be your all. Jesus should be your lover. You should be fully satisfied in Jesus, in your prayer closet. And I remember one day singing a vineyard song. And, you know, praise God for the vineyard folks. I have plenty of stories about them. But I remember singing a song, I think it was like, All I Need. And they were singing, All I Need, You're All I Need. I found it true. Life comes only from you. And then I started, I started to tear up and I couldn't sing it. Hmm. I couldn't, because I, God wasn't all that I needed. Like I was starving. Relationally, I, I needed like Jesus with skin on, but then I felt so guilty because why would I need people if I should be fully satisfied in God? So that might be a, in, you know, a small kind of theological doctrine and issue that some people may, may look at it like that. But for me, it was a big deal. And that started to unravel. And thank God that it did. I, I think of it as sort of a, a splinter that uh, ultimately needed to be pulled out and where the theotoxic splinter, the, the God splinter, the God belief was really that God is not all that I need. I mean, I need people. Uh, there's that passage, you know, how can the hand say to the foot that I have no need of thee? And so I began to kind of really question what I once held dear and thank goodness because it really brought me to a, a deeper place emotionally, relationally, and spiritually, when I realized I needed community, I needed people. Mm, mm, that's good. And, uh, and I also needed underarm deodorant and <laughs> water, and, and I needed to eat food, and it, it's okay to need. And I said, it, I got to this place where I said, I'm needy. I'm a needy man. And I, but then in my further deconstruction and reconstruction, particularly some dabbling in process theology, if God is in all and God is through all, then God is all I need if I think of my community being sort of a, in a sense, a literal, the hands and feet of God, where the community is in a sense God and I can appreciate the God who is in all. But anyway, that's a... Yeah, no, that's, that is deeper in it. And it's the difference between, you know, Richard Rohr and others talk about this pan- panentheism 
that uh, mm-hmm, this mm-hmm. this oneness, this unity of of God being in and through all things, but at the same time separate and in in part of all things. And so, yeah, that's a that's a bigger discussion. But there seems to be for those of us who have walked through some unraveling and through some pain and through some restructuring and reordering what we believe. There seems to be one thing that that keeps popping up that a lot of us have in common, and that is seeing having a much bigger view of God, but also a a oneness and a unity of all things. So I think it's interesting um, mm-hmm. that, that you bring mm-hmm. that up. So let let's talk. I want to talk about. Sure. I want to talk about the latest psychological research around the topic of religious deconstruction because I find this is fascinating. I think it's mm-hmm. happening more and more. I think as we go forward in time as human beings, as we learn more about science, as we learn more about psychology, mm-hmm. as we learn more about ourselves, you know, there's a natural progression of of call it evolution, call it whatever you want to ca- call it, but there is a there's an awakening that seems to be taking place and depending on where you fall on that spectrum of faith, you see it as mm. oh it's horrible and it's secular or you can say oh it's wonderful and it's enlightening uh, and it's a bigger understanding of God. But but from a psychological standpoint as someone who has researched this, who has studied it, who has even practiced it, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is there some psychological research that you have studied and found out around this whole topic of religious deconstruction? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, there's a difference between psychological research and sociological research. Right. And so I don't, I don't know if, if both would be yeah, relevant in this conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. So when it gets to the sociological research, there they're showing through qualitative research, in other words, hearing people's stories and then listening to that, recording them all. Some have a qualitative software that they use, but others code it in a way that they're looking for themes and looking for sub-themes in the work. Hmm. And so I kind of distilled through the research, and this is through Josh Packard's work. This is through Dave Kinneman's work at the Barner Research Group. And then there's some other qualitative research. There's a what's called the Bielefeld cross-cultural study of looking at German and U.S. deconverts of Christianity. So I kind of culminated into some 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 reasons, and so one of them could be politics and bureaucracy, mm. right? So these are the qualitative research reasons why people are leaving the church or, you know, it gets nuanced because then there's some people in the church where there's kind of one foot out, one foot in. So that's why the, the term de-church is, is a little too narrow because it's, there's so much complex cases, uh, people who are in a little bit in a lot in a little out. Right. So one is politics and bureaucracy. And that's, yeah, a lot of people experience this. So some people have a lot of gifts to share. Some people have passions. Some people have desires. And unfortunately, there's this implicit and explicit rules and norms that they get the picture. They get the messages that maybe they're, they're just, they're divorced and they can't be a part of leadership. Mm. 
mm. or they're gay or too young or too old or not attractive enough or not articulate enough or not white enough or not abled enough. And it, it really goes on and on. And some people feel this and face this, right? Some, God, I mean, so many different stories of think about how many women have been in churches with a deep passion for the word of God, for people, for community, and they can't pastor a church. They can't be elders in a church. They have to be, you know, somehow subordinate to the men in the church, and they always feel like they're less than and maybe have even experienced explicit messages of that notion. I remember uh, recently sort of, I think it was John MacArthur uh, talking about with Beth Moore and just kind of ridiculing her of, you know, who does she think she is wanting to teach the Bible? And basically she's a heretic and she should just stay in her place. Mm. So I'm not exaggerating. Like these are things that are still taking place. And some people are saying, I can't, I can't deal with this. This isn't church to me. This isn't the, the, the atmosphere of love and acceptance and of fairness and of openness and of a full community. Instead, they get a full hierarchy, which can be pretty often. The next is clone more syndrome. And this is where some churches, and I've been a part of this, this is a little bit of my Pentecostal experience, they feel like they're always in a perpetual war. Mm. And sometimes they could use the wording of war with the surrounding culture or even different expressions of the church. In other words, there could be churches in the area that have uh, been led astray by Satan and we're at war and we need to save the souls who are going there. So this sort of this us and them mentality, diversity is feared and stifled for the comfort of homogeneity. And so there's no room for messy dialogue or discussion and different theologies or different ways of experiencing God and the world, that would be way too anxiety-provoking and messy, so churches prefer their boxes. And for the sake of time, moral prescriptions would be another one. You know, what the research is showing is that these Christians have such an expansive soul. They're creative folks. They're maybe a little bit more right-brained. They're, they, they want to do something in the world and not just stay in the boxes in their churches, and they want to do great exploits for God, being inspired and empowered and filled by the Spirit, but instead they're given sort of the four-step sin management plans in their churches, right? right? They're, you know, they're hearing about, you know, people uh, who are just going to burn, right? Why would you take care of somebody's physical needs if they're going to burn in hell anyway? You've got to make sure you're giving them the gospel. Right. So some people have been turned off sort of by the moral prescriptions. And for the sake of time, shallow-itis is another sort of, you know, people want to be real and congruent. They don't want to split off parts of themselves. But yet when they come to church, it's all the Sunday smiles. It's the fog machines. It's the, you know, upbeat worship songs where we sing, you know, the chorus 30 times in a row. And it's, it's everything is positive. And that's great. There's, there should be a time and place for praise and that kind of excitement. But what about the lamenting? What about the protesting? What yes. about the questioning? What about the doubts? What about the liturgy and the worship songs expressing that in some way? Unfortunately, churches, some of them, uh, do not do that. And then the last one is church feels like a war zone. Hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the biggest things in the research that was shown is that one of the biggest pains is the staunch rejection from even questioning little things for, like I said, thinking differently, feeling differently about certain things, and they're just got the message that you're not okay. You are going to have um, a very bad future if you keep listening to Satan, who, as we know, uh, questioned the word of God way back in the beginning, in the beginning, God really said. So that kind of continual rejection and feeling like that they're not okay, and there could be issues of sexuality, there could be issues of disability, could be issues I just spoke to someone about their age and how they felt marginalized and pushed out of the church because they were getting older and they felt, you know, sort of washed up and they're really not cared for because it was the younger generation who are more important than that. Mm. So these are just some of the, a lot of reasons, Bob, of, of sort of the sociological reasons why people are hurt uh, and some even leaving and being the de-church. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's great insight. What does it mean that there seems to be a mass exodus, exodus from religion, and specifically from this idea of certainty? Mm. So many of us were brought up, it, it's not so much the religion, it's this idea of certainty, i.e., we have the truth. This is the ultimate word of God. This is God's final authority. This is what's true. This doctrine is real. There is no truer truth than this. If you go outside of this truth, then you know, you you've gone the wrong way. So this idea of certainty seems to be what the mass exodus is away from. If I believe if people could keep the community, if they could keep the some of their own spiritual practices and some of their worship practices without this idea of certainty, I think maybe they wouldn't leave. But sometimes, many times, that is required is you have to believe this certain way. Yeah. Do you you agree with that? Yes. And and all churches are different, right? Sure. But there, there are plenty of churches where certainty and you know, the box in, you know, you need to know these doctrines, you need to say it this way, believe it this way. I mean, it's, it's part and parcel of really what's fundamental, fundamentalism. It's, it's this sort of, but, but listen, as, as a therapist, gosh, this makes so much sense. Hmm. So I'll, I'll make a comment on why I think that some of the psychological reasons for that, but also my sadness in, in why people want certainty so much as well. So certainty is good. I mean, our brains like certainty. You know, when we think of the evolution, and this might get into evolutionary psychology, our, listen, if we're in the savannah, we need to know that we're, you know, we need to know what's in our surroundings. We need sure. to be certain there's not a saber-toothed tiger in the brush waiting to attack us. So our brain is sort of geared for keeping us safe. And in part of keeping us safe is knowing what we believe, or not even what we believe, but just knowing certain facts about life, right? It's, and, and part of that is being in a community and being a part of a tribe. And so you have to believe what the tribe believes, because if you don't, you could be an outcast. Right. And to be an outcast means you can die. So there's sort of a leftover tribal brain that 
listen, we we need to keep sort of certain of what we believe in part because if we disbelieve and we start questioning things, we can get ostracized by the community. And for our nervous systems, that can feel like doubt. Yes. I mean, one of the most terrible experiences of, of religious refugees is the profound aloneness that they can feel. And we're not wired to be alone. I mean, we are wired to connect. It's, it's, that's just who we are as human beings. From, you know, sort of the birth to earth, from womb to tomb, we are created, in a sense, to be connected. And it is considered a threat to be alone, according mm. to our nervous system. So I get why we would want certainty on that level. And part of it could be a, a pride thing. You know, it's like if, if we can't be smarter than God or better than God, then we'll be smarter and better than other people. But even that has a tribal mentality because it's certainly, you know, we believe what we, what our tribe believes. But then I, I get so sad, Bob, because this could be ameliorated mm. if we taught our kids, if we taught people in churches that life is much more mysterious than it is sort of the, the, the known slash unknown God, that, that mystery is in part of all things, that we are always learning, yes. that we are these little brains in the vastness of the universe, which you know, we can fly to the moon and do that, which is extraordinary. But in the grand scheme of things, we're certainly evolving in our intelligence and understanding of even the human brain itself. Right. But if, if we could teach our kids to feel that it's, ex it's excitement, it's, it's adventurous, we don't need to know all the answers. We could think of it sort of as, as a venture to behold. Mm. rather than feeling like we need all of these sort of black and white answers to God and everything else, which really is absurd anyway. But we like to think we, we can. We can grasp and control the divine, which is really weird. Yes, it is really weird. It's really weird from this side of it. It's not weird when you're in it, because I think you believe that you have found what is real and true and good. And many times there's that there's many that is accurate. There is a lot of good and true in that. But when you then say there is no more truth outside of this, or this is the correct view or the correct understanding, and when someone else comes with saying, "Well, I have something bigger," or I see it from a different, you know, all looking at the same mm. mountain, I'm on the other side of the mountain. Mm -hmm. And that's my view. Then yours, and then when it can devolve pretty quickly into, well, you know, that's not accurate. Our, you know, our understanding is the most true, and that's where it can get disheartening for so many people who do desire more, who do desire to learn and to grow. And so it is strange from this side of it, saying, you know, why, why do we, why don't we embrace the mystery? And again, I want to be careful uh, that we're not talking about all religions or all faith or all people's experiences. And like you say, mm -hmm. many people that I've met have grown up in a situation where they were encouraged to question and were encouraged to think outside of their, their own right. maybe limited belief. And that's a beautiful thing. But for many of us, we weren't brought up in those situations. And 
as a result, you know, we've we're we're trying to learn to love our experiences and appreciate that journey, but it's also comes with a lot of pain. I know yeah. I know I've spoken with people and other psychologists recently about this. And I'd love to get your take on this. There is there is real grief and stages of grief and grieving and d- almost a death that takes place many times when someone goes through a a shift in their religious understanding or beliefs or goes through a mm-hmm. an unraveling or a deconstructing and leaving one way of believing and and maybe toward another way of believing have you have you seen that in your own life have you observed or studied that what what are your thoughts on that yeah, I mean, first I could start my own life. It's, and of course, a lot of people can relate to this. It's this, and not everyone experiences this, but this is, if I, if I can, I mean, I, I kind of classify this deconstruction, reconstruction journey. And I call it, and not everyone experiences this, but I, I term what I call religious disorientation growth syndrome. So in my experience in working with people, these are some of the symptoms of what I call RDGFs, religious mm-hmm. disorientation. I experience these two. So one is doubting or denying one's religious beliefs that were once held as true. Subtle or intense anxiety about a person's relationship with God. Increase of painful emotions such as anger, loneliness, shame, guilt, sadness, and despair isolation and criticism, mm. and I say feared or realized uh, from members within their own family and or religious community. Sometimes it's true that others are judging us, mm. but what I find as a therapist, what we, you know, there's a lot of projection as well, Yeah, where it's not really happening, but we believe that, well, oh, this person, they're mumbling something, they're talking about me kind of thing. Mm. And then the, the last sort of symptom is sort of existential angst concerning a person's identity and future self, right? You know, after you start unraveling this sort of religious ide- uh, identity, you start questioning, well, not only who is God, mm. but a lot of grief and disorientation is, who am I? Who I am? And this is one of, the, you mentioned sort of consequences of certainty, is that we... Churches who foster a kind of, you know, an atmosphere where there needs to be certainty, that there needs to be, you need to listen to us as the pastor. We have the capital T truth that people's actual emotional, relational, and spiritual growth gets stunted. Mm. Because once they become untethered, if you will, from the religious matrix and unplugged, if you will, maybe from the pastor, and they start really questioning things, they really feel like they're in a new, they're in a foreign land. Right. They don't know how to walk. They don't know how to talk. They don't know what to believe. They don't know how to believe. It is completely disorienting. That's exactly what I've been through. A lot of people have. And I I do want to point another potential consequence is I, I put growth in there because what I've also experienced, and even in my own life, there's something beautiful about finally growing up. Yes. There's something beautiful about killing the authoritarian capital O others in our life, whether it could be 
a punitive, angry, violent God, whether it is a, sort of an authoritarian other of the pastor's voice who's still there, or a religious family's voice that still we've internalized. So some of the, those need to be put to death and, and be given a funeral. And that, that is, there's a lot of grief surrounding that. Yes, yes, that's so good. You know, I found uh, in my own life and talking to others and, and researching my own to, to the degree that I research and study, that there can be in certain fundamentalist circles, even conservative evangelical circles, there can be a stunting of emotional and psychological growth and hum, hum, just as a human because you outsource so much of your your morality you outsource so much of your own trust you're taught you don't trust don't trust your own heart don't trust your own tuition mm-hmm. because it can mm-hmm. lead you astray so you outsource everything and you don't learn how to develop your own internal moral compass your own internal intuition your own psychological development of saying, well, this is what adults do, and these are decisions that you make based on different things. I find there is a growing up, and there is a, and maybe flip it on the other side, there's a stunting that can take place that when you do, you know, wake up to a new reality for many of us, it it, it is an awareness of, oh, I'm stunted in that area and I've got to I've got to deal with those emotions. I've got to deal with those childhood wounds. I've got to you know act like an adult uh, in this situation. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, that's yeah. I just, you know, I feel sad as we're talking about this because it's you know, just working with people it it is so not only do they experience the trauma of of some of these experiences, but there's just such a lostness of how to get out. Uh, in other words, you know, I've been deconstructing, but how do I reconstruct? Right. And what does that even look like? But there is this, there's this need to grow up, but it's so scary because people don't know how. Mm. You know, people can get stuck in what I call the stage or actually the station of angst bill. Mm. where there's just a lot of anger and a lot of bitterness and yes. resentment. I don't think people want to be there. No. People people would get out if they could, but a lot of people don't have the tools, and that's in part why I wrote my book. But the need to, I mean, really, I hope that listeners hear this as an adventure once again. It can be so exciting. Well, first daunting, but then exciting to say, I get to create alongside with God and hopefully with another couple of people in what I call the unholy uh, huddle of those groups of people, a few group of people that can walk alongside us on this journey. And I get to create my own future. Mm. I get to tap into what do I want? What do I feel? Mm, What do I desire? What are my values? Like, I know what my pastor's values are, my my mom and dad's values are, even maybe uh, the Apostle Paul's values. Uh, But what are my values? What is God calling me in my unique identity to really focus on, to really move toward, Mm -hmm. to to really allow allow that to be my inner compass? Mm -hmm. 
it's such a beautiful adventure. It's, and once again, I mean, this isn't just a religious thing, but a lot of people, you know, have to struggle with choosing their identity. I mean, there's sort of, uh, this is existential issues we're talking about. Yep. And, and sort of having too many choices is very anxiety provoking as it is. But for those who leave the church that they once knew, and I don't, I don't like to say that they're de-churched in a sense because they haven't left the church. They've left the church. Right. They haven't left the church universal. They've left the local expression maybe mm-hmm. of the body of Christ, but they're still in the church. They've just left the church or thinking about leaving the church that they once knew. Mm. And that's very daunting. It could be traumatizing for some. And yet I encourage listeners at some point, it really does become this exciting adventure, especially when you have a few people to walk alongside you with. What are you hoping that people get from your book, Mark? What, 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 I know you wrote it out of maybe some of your own experience and your own passion as a therapist, a counselor. What are you hoping that people walk away from your book, say, than someone else's book on this subject? Yeah, I think one of, there's, there's a couple of books. Really, there isn't a whole lot of books that are explicitly discussing the, the psychological, spiritual journeys of those who are, could be called the Duns or the de-churched or, you know, spiritual refugees, religious refugees. There's a couple. Like Kathy Escobar's book is great. Uh, Marlene Winnell, Leaving the Fold, it's a good book. It's coming from a psychology. Mm, I have that one. Uh, psycho- now, granted, she's not really open or really doesn't foster this quote, spiritual growth of others. But what makes this book, Religious Refugees, kind of unique is I'm trying to integrate psychology, neuroscience, theology, philosophy, and spiritual formation all in one. And so interlaced throughout the chapters of talking about, you know, some one chapter could be on emotions. One could be on defense mechanisms. Another on what I think is one of the most powerful research to come out in the last couple of decades is the research around self-compassion. I could go on talking about that forever. But that is, if there's one of the practices and principles that I hope people really take in and internalize, Mm. it's knowing how to love yourself. Mm. And it's something that in the Christian tradition, they're not too great on fostering. Right. Uh, our Eastern brothers and sisters do that pretty good. But my hope is that listeners, I really don't encourage, I, you could read it alone if you want. I think the most, the most bang for your buck, so to speak, will to be to read this with a few other folks. And it's already taking place after each chapter, the study questions. And I think that people will find some healing in this book, find some understanding in this book, find some practices in this book. It's not all about deconstruction. It's about how do we move forward? How do we reconstruct our lives after we're leaving church as we once knew it? Mm. Those are some of the things I hope people can, can get out of this book. That's great. That's great. What is the, th- what is the one or two things, as we kind of wind this down, you would advise people who are either just coming out of this or in the middle of it, 
what are some helpful things that you could say, here's something that I would recommend, and everybody's different at different phases, I understand that, but what are some kind of universal principles you would say? Here's the most dangerous one, but I I encourage listeners to do it. It's, you, you know, Bronnie Ware is a, a palliative caregiver, and she worked with those who were dying on their deathbed. She wrote the top five regrets of the dying, and one of the top five regrets was, I wish I'd have the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. Hmm. I I would encourage people to not live another day without being who they are in God. Mm. And and to keep that in the backdrop, you do not want to spend the rest of your days on this earth living the life of somebody else or living the life that others expect of you. Mm. And so that's something that I take to heart. I'm probably a little too open and congruent in that way. I've lost a lot of friends that way. but. That, and I would also say community is important. Yes. Like I said, aloneness is one of the, you know, it's one of the toughest things to deal with. You cannot do this alone. And if I say, if you're wrestling alone, I encourage you, find a, maybe a therapist or a spiritual director or a couple of people on this journey that you can be 100% congruent with. Mm. Because we sometimes are as sick as, as the, the, the needing to hide, you know, the more we hide, the more it's, it becomes toxic to us. Yes. So yes. be who you are, stay connected to a community. If you can stay connected with God, as you know it, even if it becomes God as this mysterious, I don't know who the heck you are. Yes. Um, that's okay. And for some, they might say, I need to, I need to take a step away a little bit from prayer or even engaging God. I'm just so overwhelmed. You know, I, I want to give you permission to be congruent. And sometimes we need a little vacation from these things because it, it becomes too overwhelming. Yes. And I trust that the spirit of God in you and the spirit of God in those who care about you will not let you be fully lost in that experience. Mm, so, so I mean, those are s- some of the things that that come into mind. That's really yeah, great. I mean, it's so much. Yes, yeah. thank you, Mark. How can people get in touch with you? How can they find you? Can you give us your websites? Maybe your social. If they obviously go to Amazon, the book is there. They can find yes, it. Yeah. Uh, but if they want to go deeper than just you know, do you have yeah. a blog or a website? You know, I'm I'm not as. <laughs> Some people, man, they have some incredible, incredible platforms. I do have a site, conspiringprayer.com, mm-hmm. and that is really delving into some of the topics of my Divine Echoes book. Okay. Uh, but I also talk about theodicy and stuff in, in, in this new one, too, theodicy, prayer, trust, stuff like that. Facebook, I'm, I'm like, yeah, listen, I ha- if you want to get in touch with me, that's probably the number one place to do it. And some people are like, you don't got Instagram, what's wrong with you? <laughs> no, I think Facebook, conspiringprayer.com, and my therapy website is markgregorycaris.com. And I will offer a gift to your listeners, Bob. If they pick up my book, contact me 
through Facebook, and I will give you my best-selling book, Divine Echoes, Reconciling Prayer with the Uncontrolling Love of God, for you for free. That's awesome. And I'll, I'll even give you, well, mention this to me, I'll even give you the audio book. Mm. And this was endorsed by Brian McLaren, Tony Campola, uh, Mark Scandretti, you know, a few other people. So it's it's good. It's pretty out there as far as, you know, how we come to understand petitionary prayer. But I just want to offer that to your listeners and I'll, I'll put them up with that if they, they buy religious refugees. And that's about it. I look forward to hearing from some folks. Thank you so much for taking the time, Mark. I appreciate your words. I appreciate your, your heart for, for people who are going through this. I think your book is going to help a ton of people. So just to remind people, the title of the book is Religious Refugees, Deconstructing Towards Spiritual and Emotional Healing. Just came out. Mark Gregory Karras, that's K-A-R-R-I-S. You can pick it up on Amazon. Thank you, Mark, for for being a voice out there, and I really appreciate you taking time out to talk to me today. It was great. Thank you so much for your time, for your work. I appreciate you, brother. All right, man. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Okay.